open with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're going through Matthew's gospel. It's just been so awesome to uh, really sit under the teaching of God's Word, specifically the gospel of our Lord Jesus who presents the real Jesus, right? Not the one that's presented to us in culture very often. Pure and unadulterated. So it's a, a joy to go through the Gospels. We are up to verse 38 in chapter 12. You know, as a pastor, you get to those passages, you're like, okay, this is going to be an interesting week. Okay, let's stand together for the reading of God's powerful, life-altering Word. Matthew 13. Sorry, Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. When an evil spirit comes out of a man, it goes through and... It goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that man is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. My brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning we're going to be talking about a sign. We're going to be talking about a story. And we're going to talk about siblings. Siblings, you know what I'm saying? And we're going to jump right into it for time's sake because that's quite a lot to take in this morning. Just reading that passage is heavy stuff. The first thing we're going to talk about, Jesus is going to talk about a sign. Because in verse 38 we see this. Some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. Now what you have to do, I do have to take some time to understand the immediate context to understand how brazen and utterly contemptuous their request for a sign was. You're not going to understand Jesus' strong language if you don't understand the context of what led up to this point. 
it'll seem pretty harsh. Jesus had just given them, listen to this, soak this in for a minute. Jesus had just given them more signs than those of us in this room will ever see in our lifetimes. I'm not a prophet, but I pretty much can say that. And in the face of such amazing condescension of God who became man for us, what do they do? In the text it tells us, Jesus heals this man's withered hand so that it's just as healthy as the other one. And what's their response? Because they could not deny that something supernatural just happened. They said, it's of the devil. It's through the prince of demons that you do such a thing. That's the context. So they just see this sign. And then Jesus says to them, I've got to just summarize this real quickly. He basically says to them, you're skating on real thin ice here. He says, you're this close to going beyond the point of no return. He goes, there is a sin. You can say lots of things about me, he says, but if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, that sin will not be forgiven and won't be forgiven in this life or the life to come. He warns them strongly. Now, he doesn't say they committed it, but he says, man, you're on that road. And, what's their, and the one thing I pointed out last week that we have to see too is Jesus is so amazing. He's so loving. He loves His enemies. You know, I'll be honest with you. Like when, I, when I read about the Pharisees, all I want to do is give them an elbow you know, and say, oh, sorry. Not Jesus. Jesus in love is warning them. He actually cares about their soul. That's convicting, isn't it, for us? And so when He says such things, He's saying that to warn them from taking that last step. It's not doing it out of anger. You know, sometimes, like when my kids were young, sometimes they teach you, do not discipline in anger. And you're thinking, are you serious? You know, I mean, Caleb, I want to go like, <laughs> you know, but no, but you know, you know that's not a right thing. So a lot of times, dad has to take a time out. Amen? And dad has to go, you know what? I'll get back to you in just a minute. Because then you have to go get right with God. And then you go, and then you whoop them. But you don't whoop them in anger. There's a difference. No, so you discipline them, but you don't do it in anger. And Jesus, um, even when, of course, he's pure and righteous and holy, and he had um, righteous um, anger. But here, he did it in love. He's warning them. He tells them, watch out. You're, you're about to go to a place that you can never come back from. And uh, what's their response to Jesus' loving warning? Teacher, show us a miraculous sign. <laughs> I don't even know how I would respond to that. But Jesus responds, and he responds very severely and firmly. He says, A wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Jesus doesn't pull any punches. He tells them the truth that they need to hear and that we need to take heed to. He says a wicked and an adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign. Now let me pause for a minute so we could drink this in. Sometimes it loses, the words of Scripture can sometimes lose its punch on us because we have lost the understanding of the words, or even the meaning. For instance, when Jesus says an adulterous, situa- uh, an adulterous generation, in our culture, everything goes. This was a serious indictment. What is the sin of adultery? 
It is to sexually, physically, emotionally, and mentally love someone else other than the one that you made a covenant with. Amen? And that's why divorce is so heinous. And what Jesus is saying here, just like in the Old Testament, remember Hosea, He is applying the sin of adultery, human, to adultery against God, to being unfaithful. God's covenant people. Here are the people that were supposed to be guides. They were supposed to lead the people of Israel. They were supposed to lead people to God. And they were adulterous. They were not faithful to God. They had left God. And Jesus says a wicked generation asks for such things. Think about this. They had more evidence than any other generation ever did. And what all these, you know, I I always think, man, if if I could just walk through the hospital and say, in Jesus' name, be healed. Somebody would just go, I would think, man, we'd have a revival, right? People would be falling on the floor. Jesus, I'm sorry, right? But here's an interesting thing. In light of all these miracles, did these men repent? Did their hearts melt? Did they fall on on the feet of Jesus and say, have mercy, Lord? No, with all these signs, we find out that their problem ultimately is not a philosophical problem, right? It's not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. That's the crux of the issue. What is it? The heart of the matter, my teacher used to say in college, is the matter of the heart. Problem was, let's just be blunt here. This is hard to take. They hated God. That's the issue. They claimed to serve Him. They claimed that everything they were doing was for Him. Yet when He finally appears to them in the flesh, they respond with what? Hatred and unbelief. The earlier passage, it says, after Jesus um, showed them that they were um, unjust and unrighteous, it says they went and plotted on how to kill Him. (laughs) What do you do with evidence? You get rid of it. And that's what they wanted to do with Jesus. So, so often the liberals talk about how us conservative evangelicals, we try to hide the evidence about the manuscripts of the Bible and this, that, and the other thing. Where the, the, the interesting thing is, they're the ones who hide the evidence. They don't want to face the truth. They don't want to face who God really is. You know, Martin Luther, um, when he was struggling before he was converted, remember he went to the monastery, he still wasn't saved yet, and he was confessing his sins like all day long to the priest. And the priest was so tired of Martin Luther coming. And Martin Luther, and, and so uh, the priest just says, Martin, don't you just love God? I'm like, just love God, man. <laughs> you know, just, just love Him. And Martin said, love God. Sometimes I hate Him. Right? Martin Luther was acknowledging he has a problem. These folks wouldn't even acknowledge it. As much as we want to demonize the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day, we have to take these words to heart ourselves. Not using a so-called lack of evidence as an excuse to put off receiving Christ and taking His yoke upon us. Uh, a good friend of mine, when I was in uh, another church, um, we sat and we had a, a little meal together and I was kind of asking him about, you know, if you were to die tonight, you know, you would go to heaven, you know, the EE questions, evangelism, explosion, explosion questions. And, 
out of nowhere, he says to me, and I, I didn't know this was coming because I knew him really well, and he goes, well, I have some issues. I'm like, oh, you do? Tell me about it. He's like, yeah, how do we know the Bible's true? And all of a sudden I'm like, it took me off guard because he never talked like that before. I'm like, where's this coming from? And I'm taking them seriously. You know, I'm, it's, I never learned, right? This passage, I guess I wasn't really meditating on. So I actually did like a series of sermons on the evidences of the Christian faith. You know what I mean? I did like one, how you could trust the Bible and how you could trust Jesus, you know, that Jesus is God and, and these other things. And it was only a few weeks later, I get a phone call saying, you need to come over. And I found out the issues were not intellectual issues. You, you with me? <laughs> there was moral issues that were being struggled with, and the other things were what? A smokescreen. I tell you, even forget about the supernatural miracles. You could stare at the Atlantic Ocean and say there's no God. You can watch your baby being born. I, I'll tell you, when, when I was younger, you know, like women, they see babies, they're always like, oh, the baby. And I was always as a teenager, so I was like, what the heck is wrong with these people, man? These little drooling things. Like, get these things away from me, you know? And then I had mine. And I remember seeing them being born, man, and it was like, you got you to gotta see this. You know, like, also, I wanted the whole world to see because I'm like, there is a human being popping out of my wife right now. This ain't normal. Yeah. But so, what a miracle that is, right? In, in the earthly realm. The problem is not a lack of evidence. God has made himself clear, both in creation and in this case, even through supernatural miracles when Jesus came. The problem is the heart. And even as Christians, we sometimes don't like to face what we know to be true. Can I get an amen? Kierkegaard once put it this way. He said this, The matter is quite simple. Listen, this is powerful. It really illuminates this passage. The Bible is very easy to understand. And he means the basic message, not every area. But we as Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand it, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. Now here's the the, the cool thing he says. He goes, my God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. Ain't that the truth? We see the real Jesus. We see the truth. But we realize if we accept Him as He is, things got to change. Right? We can't go on living the way we have been. Our pet sins, they got to go. We can't just be concerned about ourselves anymore and, and our will and what we want. And we have to be concerned about God's kingdom coming about Jesus, about His glory, about our brothers and sisters not thinking of ourselves better than others. Amen? You know, people always, uh, they they often talk about our particular work of mercy ministry and things like that. And uh, they wonder, you know, why do you think the church doesn't get involved? It's like, (laughs) seriously? Come do it with us for a week. You'll answer your own question, Right? So Jesus 
goes here and, and takes it to another level. He says, oh, you know what? I'll give you a sign, all right. But the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. That just as he was in the, the belly of, by the way, it says here, a great fish, not a whale. We don't know what kind of fish, but it was huge. Just as he was in the belly of a great fish for three days, so shall the Son of Man be in the belly of the earth. So what is the sign? The sign is his death and resurrection. That's the greatest sign, right? Because that sign was shown, and what did the Pharisees do with that? You know, I remember in Luke's Gospel, you remember that? When uh, poor man Lazarus, he dies, remember? And the rich man dies, the rich man goes down into to hell, and, and he's suffering in pain, and he says, you know, go send somebody from the dead, Father Abraham, because, because then they'll listen. And you remember what Abraham says? They have Moses and the prophets. If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't listen even if somebody comes from the dead. Which is exactly what our Lord did. And so by the way, Jesus is not going to make the, base the greatest sign in the world on a fictional story. Jonah really happened. That poor guy really was in the belly of a stinky, smelly fish and he got vomited out. Blech! And that is the sign. And it's interesting. You know when it says he, and for three days, right? Um, was buried and for three days and then he rose again. This is the passage it comes from. Where else in the Bible does it say in the Old Testament it'll be three days? It's right here. This is the sign. Interesting, isn't it? Just a side note. Then here's the irony that Jesus brings out that is, it's so ironic here. He says that the men of Nineveh, a pagan city, remember this now, a pagan, non-believing city as it were, non-covenant city, they repented at the coming of that guy who vomited out. Just an ordinary prophet. Now, one greater than Jonah is here. And look at all that he's done, and you've rejected him. Those men from Nineveh are going to reject that generation of Jews. It's heartbreaking. I mean, they're going to stand up and condemn them. Then Jesus adds on to that. He goes, think about it this way. He says, the queen of the south will rise up in testimony against this generation because she came miles and miles. She went to see when she heard about Solomon, the wise man. The, the wisest man in the universe has come to you and you've refused to listen to his wisdom. Chilling, actually. I think of the atheist who once said this. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. Now here's where it's, it's really telling. He says this. Rare do you see this honesty in atheists. He says, it isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Wow. In the religious leaders' case, they didn't deny the existence of God in general, but they were con- when they were confronted with the real God in the flesh, they didn't like what they saw. 
because he was a mirror to who they were. Amen? When you're the false thing and the real thing comes, you got two choices. Get with the program. Or again, in this case, get rid of the evidence. What I find so refreshing and encouraging about going through Matthew's Gospel this time in our church's life, this time in my own personal life in history, is because Jesus is revealed to us in the Gospel of Matthew and the other Gospels as He is. Not as some cosmic hippie Jesus, right? This free love Jesus of the 60s or whatever it is. But as the one who was filled with grace and truth. The one who was both love and holy. Right? The one who was totally righteous and yet compassionate. I like to mention this one uh, lyric from a song that, that I heard and, and I just love it. For those of us who do know Jesus and believe in Him, we have chosen to walk right out into the sun and let the fire in. Amen? We know we need Him, the real Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, this Jesus, you'll either love Him or you'll hate Him. You'll reject Him and all He stands for or you will submit to Him in faith and repentance as Lord and Savior. There is no other way. Ultimately. You'll find yourself in one camp or the other. You'll find that you're hating Him more or you're loving, loving Him more as you're confronted with Him. And I want to say this before I just go to the, my last two points. The second point is very short, so don't worry about it. It's not as long as this one. But as we strive and as you guys strive, you should be thinking of this too, to plant a cross-cultural, mercy-minded, Christ-centered church of Jesus Christ, we have to make sure that it's this Jesus we're preaching. The real Jesus. The one that God has presented to us in His Word. The one who I'd rather, you'd rather, hopefully rather die a thousand deaths than offend. And yet the one whose love is deeper than any ocean and whose acceptance is more beautiful and wonderful than anything this whole earth can offer. So much for the request for a sign. Now he tells a quick story to back up and then it's just really the punchline of, the, of that whole those verses and he tells this interesting story about um, earlier he just cast out a demon and now he's going to give the example of what happens when you cast a demon out and he's going to apply it to that particular generation and the example is this when it, when a demon gets cast out the house is cleaned it's put in order and that demon goes around searching for another place to settle and it can't find any place to rest and he says well let me go back to my old place let's see what's you know if it's still the way it was and when he goes back to his old place what does he see It's all swept out. I never saw it as clean as this. So then he goes, I can't whistle. Where, uh, is that me? The the preacher has to tell himself, turn your phone off. When he comes back and he he finds seven spirits more wicked than himself. And then he goes back into that man. And here's the interesting thing. The state of that man will be worse than, than even before. And then he says, he gives you the punchline. The punchline is, so it will be with this present wicked generation. 
Think about this. John the Baptist came preaching repentance to cleanse the land. Jesus obviously was the one he was preaching about. He follows up. He, goes, he serves notice to hell that the king of kings is here and you have to leave the territory. And he casts out demons. He's, he's not even casting them out. He's teaching. And all of a sudden, a demon yells, Son of God, Jesus, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? That's our Lord. He serves notice. He cleanses the land, but as a whole, instead of once they're cleansed and, and, and made, made whole, instead of receiving Jesus, what do they do? They reject Him. And in rejecting Him, now they have an empty hole that has to be filled with something. And unfortunately, it's worse than the first demon that was cast out. Because now they're more hardened against the gospel than they were before. Amen? We often talk about areas in our country and even in the world where we call it the burnt-over district. Do you know what we mean by that? Well, like New England and those areas? Because they had great revivals, a lot of people came to Jesus, and then slowly but surely, what happened? People in the light of the truth began to walk away from the faith. Uh, the other generations didn't believe in Jesus, yet they already heard it. You follow me? So there's kind of like an inoculation, whatever you call it. They're inoculated against it. And that's what was going to happen, unfortunately, and it did happen with that generation of Jews. You remember Jerusalem fell with a great fall, A.D. 70. But Jesus wasn't talking about A.D. 70, by the way. He said at the judgment, didn't he? At the judgment. He was looking even beyond that. And I think it's scary, and I'm going to go to the last point, one more second here, but one more moment. But I think it's scary when you think of, we talk about post-Christian societies. Wow. The more and more our culture gets post just think about it. Has there been a country more blessed than the United States of America? And I'm not talking religiously. I'm just talking about God has blessed us. You know, we're not the second Israel, believe me, I know that. The church is, by the way, but that's a whole other story. We've been blessed. We've heard the gospel. We've seen revival. And now, unfortunately, like the other nations like England and Canada, we are becoming post-Christian. Last thing, and this is where we get, it gets a little encouraging, but there is some challenge here. He goes from a sign, he tells you a story to back up um, his points, and then he tells us, then we learn about Jesus' siblings. Right? With all this rejection and warning going on, things might seem made, mighty grim for the cause of Christ right? as we look at this passage. But the interesting thing is that in the midst of this opposition, in the midst of this nation's rejection of Him, there are those who follow Him and fa- in faith and devotion. Because He's still talking to the crowd, this heavy message, right? All these words that we're just hearing. And then someone comes and says, Hey, your mother and your brothers, they want to talk to you. So Jesus takes this opportunity to serve notice to his family and to teach a really neat lesson in a moment. And the first notice is, I am no longer your son in, in the flesh, as it were. I'm not your older brother that we used to play when we were younger. If you want to really be a part of my family, then just like everybody else, you're going to have to receive me as Lord and Savior. That's the notice he's serving because he says, who are my mother, my brothers, my sister? And it's wonderful. Here's the good news which you might miss. 
he points to his disciples. He says, these. It's my mother, my brother, my sister, those who do the will of my father. What's true for Jesus, that those who do the will of his father, by following him, by the way, because the disciples were followers of him, just as they are his brother and sister and mother, it's also true for us now. By the grace of God, if someone is a follower of Jesus, it doesn't matter their skin color, it doesn't matter their socioeconomic background, it doesn't matter if they're well-known, not known, they are your brother your sister, your mother. I can't tell you what a joy it was when I got saved to meet mothers in the Lord who would sit with me and say, come, let's read the Bible. Sit next to me. And I remember this older woman, would sit, and she would read the Bible. And I was 19 years old, but I never, I never had a parent sit with me and read the Bible with me. And I remember just sitting like a little kid, just enjoying her reading the scriptures for, and just her mentoring me like a mother and then, you know, just caring for me like a mother would. And my brothers, I thank God for uh, my earthly brother and sister, but the fellowship I have with my brothers and sisters in Christ, it's just, it's a whole nother level, isn't it? It's a whole nother world. And that teaches us, and that's why in the New Testament, the the apostles picked up on on Jesus. I, I love, in the early church, there was a pagan who says with sarcasm, he goes, man, their leader, speaking of Christians, their leader has put it into their heads that they are brothers. You know what I'm saying? But even then it was being picked up, and it was... It, it just shows how the early Christian community literally was a familia. I want to tell you, when, when I went to Italy, I went with some friends and my wife. I, I couldn't, underst- couldn't I put my finger on it at first why I was so overwhelmed. And why I was overwhelmed was the way that my family over there, after we never saw each other in the flesh before, received me. Simply because of one thing. We only had one thing in common. We were family. Amen? And what that tells me, when I saw the way that, you know, it didn't matter what we had done, it didn't matter how messed up each other were, we loved each other, that's how it is is to be in the church of Jesus Christ. Why do I love you? Because you're my brother. You're not like a brother. You are my brother. That's what the Bible tells me. You are my sister. You are my mother. I remember I was preaching a sermon on on cross-cultural ministry in another uh, church I was at. And at the end, you know, I felt really good. I thought I made it clear I was ripping. And at the end, I, I go and I'm shaking hands. And this older gentleman comes up. I got no problem with those people. You, you know whatever's coming after that ain't going to be good, right? Because like those people, I'm thinking, okay. He goes, look, I got no problem with those people as long as they don't marry our people. Now I'm, I'm like so flabbergasted. I'm like, I don't even know. There's so many millions of things going on in my head. But the one thing I do remember thinking is I thought we are each other's people. If we're believers, isn't that my people? It doesn't matter what the heck, what race you are or, or how much money you have or don't have. It doesn't matter if you listen to country music. 
Just saying. <laughs> Familia. And, and I want to say this because I think it's powerful for our context. We do not understand the strong pull and the need to belong. Right? How do you think gangs make it? You know how gangs recruit, recruit our young men? They make them feel like they're a part of the family. Like they belong to something. How do you think cults have millions of followers? Because you belong to this cult. You're now one of us. You're no longer alone. And so unfortunately, some people are so lonely, they so long to belong like we all do, that they meet a legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And so church, we need to wake up. We need to be a home for the homeless in a very multi-level way. For the lonely, it says the Lord sets the lonely in families. What do you think he's talking about? We see in this chapter, and I will close with this, we see in this chapter that you can be a religious leader preaching to others and still be very far from the kingdom of God. We see that you could grow up with the Messiah Jesus and play with toys with each other and, and, and you know, and grow up and eat the same food together and still be far from Him. And yet we see that you could have been so far from Him, not having any other connection to Him, but when you heard His call, you took His yoke upon you. You threw in your lot with Him and you are His intimate child. You belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And the Bible says you are a co-heir with Christ. You can say amen. And so when we offer this to folks all around us, whether it's physical family, whether it's neighbors, whether it's enemies, we do it out of love for their souls. And we know some will reject Some have heard it, and their hearts are hard. But we know, like Jesus pointed out, some will receive. And all the rejection is worth it to get to those whom God is calling to Himself. May God bless your ministry in Trenton. And may there be a lot of comings and goings between us. And we pray, you'll pray for us, that our ministry would do the same. Reach the city that needs Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your good news. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the one. You are the world's only hope. You're our only hope. Forgive us for uh, serving you with such a lack of zeal. Forgive us for our spiritual adultery at times, running after other gods. Forgive us as a church for not accepting one another, for trying to put back up walls that you knocked down thousands of years ago. God, it's only through you and with your help and in your mercy that we could be a part of the answer and not the problem. And that's what we pray here for each of us in this room, Lord. Work in our hearts. We thank you that in your mercy you live there and you protect us from the evil one. Use us to bring many more to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This Sunday sermon was preached by the Reverend Dr. Santo Garofolo. 
New City's Sunday Sermon is recorded live on location at New City Fellowship of Atlantic City. If you're in the Atlantic City area, stop by. Our address is 215 North Sovereign Avenue, Atlantic City, New Jersey. Visit us online at newcityac.org. That's www.newcityac.org. Oh God is written and performed by the Reverend Dr. Sandra Garofolo. Join us next week for a brand new New Cities Sunday Sermon.